Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Link to Intervention podcast. My name is Ben Aldeberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makara, Auckland. Tēnā kamihi ke te mana whenua o Aotearoa. And we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New Zealand. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Durrumbull country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lentil Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. Our health-related discussions generally relate to lifestyle choices, usually diet in particular, and how they relate to non-communicable diseases, and more directly, our organs. But interestingly, we've never really paid much attention to our biggest organ, the skin. But in this episode, we have you covered. See what I did there, Emma? Um, (laughs) SPF 50 covered. Um, I'm pretty excited for our (laughs) chat today um, because, as Ben said, we are delving into a topic that we haven't covered yet. Um, So we'll be talking all things diet and skin health with Dr. Niyati Sharma, a dermatologist now based in Melbourne after a very impressive international career thus far. Dr. Sharma is founder of Inside Out Dermatology, the first plant-based dermatology medical clinic in Australia. And she'll also be a speaker at the upcoming Doctors for Nutrition, Nutrition and Healthcare Conference in February. That's getting pretty close now, so do check those details out if you're keen on attending. But in the meantime, onto the show. Nyadi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Thanks both Emma and Ben for having me. We've, it's taken a little while, but we're finally here. <laughs> Worth the wait. Well, we've, yeah, exactly. And we've saved a perfect episode to kickstart uh our new season because we're at the height of summer so you know what this is actually quite topical which is which is quite quite good just like with all guests we like to start with a little bit of a backstory uh sometimes it's not so much of a little backstory and i think emma alluded to that that uh your background certainly fascinating in terms of varying countries and places you've you've either worked or volunteered at so let's first start off tell us a little bit about yourself who you are mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit about that journey uh, so firstly, you may have guessed, I've got an Indian background. So I think that's really important because I like to promote skin of colour and the diseases in skin of colour as well. Um, I have grown up in different continents. So I've lived in pretty much most continents in the world, um, but I've also started, um, I guess my parents had the bug for travelling when I was a kid. So I lived in Africa and then Uh, We moved to Australia when I was probably seven, I think, um, where I lost my French and Arabic and picked up English instead. Um, And then I've pretty much uh, grown up in Australia and then travelled and all around Australia. Actually, I lived in the outback doing medicine. Um, So you name a place and I probably may have visited or lived there. Um, So that was really fascinating for me, living within the Indigenous communities and living in quite remote areas, working with um, quite a number of um, refugees, health centres. And then as a result, I got really interested in dermatology. That's how I basically um, got inspired to think about it as a career. Um, And then I was lucky enough to get into the program and uh, I was sent off to Singapore for a year to study part of my training there, which was um, quite a fascinating actually because it was the first time I worked and lived in Asia and got to understand how different, I think, ethnicities work um, or understand their skin problems. Um, so, and that was great because I got to understand nuances of treating skin diseases in, um, in a tropical environment. And then um, having always been interested in doing public health, I did a lot of volunteering in northern part of India where we set up the derm clinic and then I went to East Timor, Papua New Guinea, Fiji um, and then I wanted to formalise my training in public health. So uh, I spent a year doing that at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So got really excited about um, and at that by that time I'd sort of got really interested in nutrition, got introduced to the whole food plant-based 
diet, which was actually another story because I was on a journey or holiday in Japan and I met a, a Japanese plastic surgeon who has a vegan cheese cafe in Kyoto and I got to meet her and she introduced me to this whole fascinating world of whole fruit plant-based and, you know, that I should go to the nutrition conferences in LA. Um, so anyway, um, it sort of subsequently I ended up at Johns Hopkins doing a course in nutrition, public health and advocacy and leadership and then um, came back in 2019 just before the pandemic and then thought it might be a good time to open my own clinic because um, being sort of uh, advocating sort of more holistic approaches to skin disease is not not everyone does that and then I think it's a niche um, and um, look not everyone's receptive to it um, as in in terms of patients but those that are are super receptive and they find the information really interesting um, and often they'll come back and you know say that they've implemented some of the changes in their lifestyle so uh, which is very rewarding for me so um, and I think that helps because as a doctor like up until that point I always just handed out medications and not had the satisfaction of, of actually trying to you know change a person's lifestyle I didn't really understand what could be done to improve a patient's, you know, medical history. Um, because often I also relied on general media to, you know, give me the information. I thought genetically we were prone to diseases and that's what it was. Um, little did I know that genes don't play a big role in the outcome of our diseases. So it's often the environment we place those genes in. Um, so yeah, in, in a nutshell, I kind of like having lived in so many countries growing up, uh, as a teenager, um, and then as an adult, I think that I've, I've got a nice understanding of different cultures and what, um, but often food is very common in all our, all the cultures. And so, um, navigating that can be interesting, basically. So yeah, that's, that's my little journey. <laughs> Quite a substantial one, not little. Um, <laughs> but I just want to backtrack a little bit to your residency in Singapore at the National yes. Skin Centre, I believe, because that sounds like it a was. really interesting placement. So what, what types of things were you actually working on there and learning? So um, basically saw everything um, from all skin conditions, really, um, as well as infectious diseases and um, uh, the main thing is like in, it's in, in, it's understanding the patient's um, lifestyle, the environment they live in, and then also trying to understand what would make them understand. So often in Australia, we'll, we'll have a little joke with the patient, we'll laugh off, a, you know, to try and ease the situation. But in, uh, it's sort of not the case in in Singapore, I would never, I would, I would find the same jokes wouldn't, wouldn't make someone laugh as it does here. Um, but also um, economically, it was very challenging because some a lot we think that Singapore is a very rich country, which it is, but it's disproportionate. And so often, you know, you'd give the treatment plan. For example, I'd say, okay, you've got eczema, you really need like six tubes of steroids that you need to use over a week, and they'll say, no, I can't afford that. You give me one. And so that would change my management because. You know, yes, I'd like, I, I know that they'll get better if they did use all the tubes that I prescribed, but, you know, often I'm left to use, you know, um, other ways of treating, like maybe give them oral medication that's cheaper for them or um, consider um, using tactics that might help them improve their environment. So, you know, if, if sweat is making them very itchy and they have to be serving in the army, they might need modified duties um, while they're in the army. So it's very um, uh, interesting. The medications are always available. That was the beauty of it. It's just that, um, you know, it made me realise how lucky we are in Australia and New Zealand that we get access to so much more medication um, and our patients can get it almost for nothing usually. Um, and having worked in the States as well, it's the same thing. You, you know, certain antibiotics in the States would cost a patient $600 a month. It would cost our patients $5. So, you know, it's, it's a, that disparity in healthcare makes it really interesting. And I think that um, 
often in Australia we'll you know talk about health and holistic approach, but um, sometimes there isn't enough incentive from an economic point of view to change your habits because the medications are just you know they're quite cheap and affordable. But in the states, when I worked there, if um, you know would come across patients that end up in emergency because they have to rationalize their insulin because the insulin costs them $500 a month a week. And so if you, you can, you're, you know, living on a pension, you're getting $500 a week just to live. How can you buy that much insulin for you to survive? So what you would do instead is rationalize it, use maybe quarter of the dose that you need or half the dose. And then you'll end up being in the hospital because you get ketoacidosis. Um, and in those cases, changing your lifestyle makes more of a sense because you can explain to the patient economically what changes you make will have such a greater impact on your long term. So I think that, um, yeah, that's been a really, that was really interesting observation that I had because so many conversations I had with patients would result in saying to them, look, you're not going to have your, other, your next child die at 30 from being overweight and obese. You know, you can make changes now um, or, you know, make these changes now and then you'll end up saving money to actually, you know, send your kids to school, or, you know. So, like, uh, it's a, yeah, it's it's a, not as straightforward as you would imagine, but it definitely allows, um, as a medical practitioner, to have a little bit more of a influence in changing their lifestyle and, and decision but um, I guess in a way we're very lucky in Australia that we don't often have to make those life-changing decisions. So often we rely on the doctors giving us medications and continuing to give us this medication. And if we get a complication from a medication, well, we'll take another tablet to help with that complication. So, yeah. <laughs> so with all that exposure and, um, you know, different, within different communities, societies, countries, systems, um, what were some of the key uh, goals or objectives that you wanted to bring into establishing your own clinic? So I think having a, a sounding board, you know, sometimes I get patients who'll come in and say, oh, you finally listened to me. Or I, I thought there was a link between what I was doing and my, and my disease, but no one told me about that or being able to have a very open conversation. Often um, you, I'm, I might see patients that are plant-based and often they'll come in and they won't tell me they are plant-based because they're worried about the judgment that I'll put across to the patient. But when I explain to them, actually, I'm plant-based too, uh, all of a sudden, you know, the whole guard is alleviated and it's just gone and they can talk to me about, yeah, they have an iron deficiency because, I, you know, things like iron deficiency or B12 deficiency or vitamin D, it's not, you know, we often blame it on a plant-based diet, but actually, you know, that we all know that's not the case. It's so many factors that go into place with that. And so, you know, when you are a patient and you get that, instant judgment it becomes really hard to be very open about your health um so i think yeah having that um sort of a safe environment where you can talk about things or you know often i have long-term patients who'll come in they'll say oh sorry i didn't come for my last checkup because i had a heart attack and i'll say okay well have your cardiologist talked to you about all these you know different studies and and you know uh have you seen the nutrition facts website have you you know um, do you know about doctors for nutrition and so I might guide them through those resources um, in, an, in a non-confrontational way because I have that relationship with the patient for so many years looking after their skin so um, I, I think that all of us as medical practitioners or healthcare providers have a role you don't have to be dead set in your um uh, in your specialty, but you can often give patients resources and say, you know, be your own health advocate, look for resources and find specialists that will help you to, you know, reduce the burden of your disease or try and see if you can reverse that, you know, um, that problem, whether it's heart disease. And, you know, my, my journey started very young. My grandmother lived in Yemen she migrated to Yemen with my, my, my granddad was a diplomat. So he lived in 
uh, Yemen. And he, she died at 63 because she had no access to um, healthcare. She had a heart attack and unfortunately wasn't able to get the right access to healthcare, even though she was under, you know, this banner of being a diplomat's wife. And so, you know, there are un situations where access to healthcare is very limited and I completely understand, but then, you know, we have so much access to healthcare now and yet people are still dying of heart attacks at such a young age. So surely um, I do think that, you know, things like what you guys are doing, having these podcasts is so important because even if it reaches one person, I think that's a huge change that you have made in someone's life. So um, yeah, having conversations is very important and having non-judgmental conversations. I think that's so important that you really are truly taking a, a holistic approach and um, don't get me wrong, of course we need specialists, but like if we're yes. just siloing each system and you know if you're purely concentrating on the heart without any regard to the kidneys or purely concentrating on the skin without any regard to anything else that's yeah we can quickly get into trouble there so that's really lovely approach yeah, and you know taking. i think that's hard in medicine because we become so super specialist in one thing that you know if someone asked me about cardiology now after being a dermatologist for so long i won't remember <laughs> half the things i won't be abreast all the information but I think the beauty of this sort of having access to certain websites and resources, um, even if I don't know, I'll often sit with the patient in the, in the clinic and listen to a video from Michael Greger. And, um, you know, that's, that's so, um, in, I learn and the patient learns at the same time. And I will put a disclaimer. I'll often say, look, I know I'm not a cardiologist, but, you know, here's evidence-based medicine that's, you know, non, that is unbiased. Let's have a look at it. And you can take from it whatever you like from it. But I feel like putting that, planting that seed in someone's mind that, you know, you're not, you're, you may be 50 and you've had a heart attack and someone's told you that that's it for life. You know, you're going to be on medication. No, I'm trying to say to them, look, there are so many amazing people that have overcome this. There are um, so many cardiologists that show us research over and over again, you know, the impact of reversing diseases through nutrition and lifestyle. Um, so, yeah, I think it's our role as, as healthcare professionals is you may not give them, I always say to them, I don't know about your tablets. I'm not going to advocate changing any of them, but it's really important that you start reading about this because you, you, your healthcare provider may not know about the uh, nutritional part of your disease but you have access now to an amazing world of, you know, the web. Like, go ahead and look it up because I'm sure you'll find something that will click. And we do have to mention, um, you've also contributed a chapter on diet and dermatological conditions in the academic textbook, Plant-Based Nutrition in Clinical Practice, which was yes. edited by a few wonderful people, including Shireen Kassam, who we had on the show previously. Oh, amazing, um, yes. This book is such a fantastic resource for any <laughs> health professionals, but also for patients really wanting to dive a little deeper into the evidence around plant-based nutrition for you know various aspects of health. So um, please help us give this textbook the plug it deserves, basically. <laughs> Well, all I can say is I had, um, mine's a very small chapter, so I don't know about the other authors, but I spent three months getting up at 4.30 <laughs> to do my research while running, while running my practice and going to hospitals and working my corporate jobs. So that was uh, definitely took a lot out of my time to do. Um, it was like writing a thesis, actually, because um, the amount of studies that I had to read to be able to concisely put together a chapter was um, uh, quite a nice, actually good experience. I would say, I don't know if I'll be ready to do another one of those for a little while, but, <laughs> um, and I think the great thing is that it's an, in, you know, all the authors are of different backgrounds. They are different specialists that provide this holistic evidence-based um, uh, ev uh, advice on nutrition and the diseases they deal with. And I think who who isn't better to deal with that? If you've got an orthopedic surgeon telling you about your calcium and where you can get it from and how you can improve your osteoporosis and prevent fractures, well, I think that's, you know, um, that's brilliant. Um, rather than, you know, sort of having, um, 
you know, your random TV ad talking mm. about calcium comes from dairy and you need a glass of milk and a piece of cheese to help you get your calcium intake. I think, you know, we're, we're a little bit beyond that as a society now. And I think we should be um, really looking at and um, finding these um, specialists and finding these healthcare providers that are experts in their field who deal with patients day in, day out to really give us the advice that we need to prevent diseases. And, you know, it's a brilliant book. Um, it's a hard read. There's so much detail in the, in the book. Um, but the great thing is that you can pick a chapter and uh, that's relevant to you and, and read on it. And hopefully, you know, um, uh, you, a lot of these authors have their own social media and you can follow them and, you know, continue to learn from them. Um, which I think is really important because medicine is constantly evolving. What I knew in med school, it's no longer relevant today to how we treat patients. So, for example, we have, um, you know, certain medications called biologics. They were non-existent when I was a medical student. Now, now that is my main, main way of treating someone's um, skin disease, you know, certainly psoriasis and eczema through these biological therapies. So, um, yeah, it's really important to understand that medicine is constantly evolving and we're constantly getting more information. So, um, and not one person is going to know absolutely everything about everything in medicine. In fact, even a specialist doesn't know everything about their field. So um, what better way to learn about nutrition that's relevant to that specialty by the specialists themselves? So I definitely recommend going on Booktopia if you're in Australia and getting yourself a book. <laughs> You've mentioned the importance of empowering your patients. Um, you know, we know this in, in other spheres, you know, if you're, you might tell a patient something, but they need to hear it from someone else as well, or two or three other people, and then it gets reinforced. Um, but what's important about empowering an individual is giving them the right resources. So a book like yes. this is certainly a, a big plus. And, and yes, there are hard reads, but that's the point because when you're at a stage when you actually need to know something, then it's actually valid and they're actually more appreciative of, okay, this actually makes sense. And there's a lot of references, so it's got to be true. You know, it's not a social media post. So yeah, I think it's, it's a, might be the smallest, but it might be one of the most impactful chapters. It's, it's, it's more about having a go-to place for something that is specialized, but is contained within a bigger, a bigger piece. And, and that's the whole thing around lifestyle. Yeah. And I think it's uh, really interesting when I studied nutrition at Johns Hopkins, often people say, but you're a dermatologist, why do you need to know nutrition? And uh, so it's really interesting because you know, uh, derm, derm, if, if you, if anyone suffered from acne, it's the simplest thing, but it can be quite life-changing. It can affect your mental health quite significantly. So, you know, often the ones that, uh, you know, the little blurb I wrote in my chapter was that um, there are thousands of diseases in dermatology, often with very low incidence, but the most common conditions that have the highest amount of incidence or prevalence in the society often have some kind of nutritional link to it. And with the improvement in understanding the gut microbiome and the skin microbiome, I think that is going to increase. That, that information that we know now is very small, but I think as it expands, we'll get a better understanding of how the gut plays a role with the skin. And, uh, and we're already seeing that in few conditions like rosacea and psoriasis. Um, so I always say to patients, like, it's really important because it, it impacts your life in more than one way. When you have something on your skin, it's not just skin deep. It is beyond that because it affects you mentally um, quite for a long period of time. Whereas if you have something internally, often you can't see it. So it's often hard to like, unless you see a CT scan or something else where physically you can see that disease it has it doesn't leave that much it can be very impactful but when it's on your skin even if it's a minor disease it has a bigger impact i guess on a person so um any little changes that you make on your diet can have small or big impact depending on how much you put in um to making those changes so yeah skin you, uh, people don't understand but there is so much more understanding starting to occur about treating your skin 
as as well as you're treating your rest of your body and the rest of the organs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier about um, you know differences uh, between various ethnicities, and the one thing leading on from what you've just said, do you find uh, or have you found any differences within the the more traditional, so not the influence of Western diet, but the more traditional diets from those various ethnicities and the linkages to the various, uh, I guess, even rates of incidence of various skin diseases or conditions or, I mean, acne is kind of a, a very common and, and um, you know, we know that's linked to, to I mean, dairy is a, you know, a contributing factor to the high fat and, the, and, and all the hormonal balances and all that. But yeah, is, is there a link you've seen across some of your studies and work and, and other areas in terms of the actual diet, but a traditional yeah. non-Western diet? So very interesting. So I work, I've, I've only been to Papua New Guinea twice for work, but um, I think there was a group of researchers back in the 1970s when they first went to Papua New Guinea, they recorded no evidence of acne in the teenage population in PNG. Um, and then subsequently when I go and visit, so the last time I went was 2019, I can certainly see not, not as much, but enough to say, yes, acne does exist in the, in, in PNG. And that, that's really interesting because this paper made a, a distinction between the introduction of the Western diet into a typical Papua New Guinean diet, um, you know, around that, after that time. And so, yeah, that was one. The other thing is, you know, I've lived in a few Middle Eastern countries and, you know, there's a whole month of fasting for Ramadan and um, a paper showed a link between fasting, even though what usually happens in, so in in non-Middle Eastern countries, the uh, the people's schedule remains the same. So, you know, you still have to go to work nine to five, regardless of if you're fasting or not. Whereas in the Middle East, you know, I've got a, a really good friend that lives in Saudi Arabia they flip their schedule. So they're awake during the night and then sleep during the day. And so they're still eating just as much. But what they found in, in a group of patients from Saudi Arabia was if they, when they did fasting for a month, even though their niche calorie intake may have not changed, um, their psoriasis improved in that period of time. So, um, and that's when we found a link between um, the you know, uh, dietary weight, why weight contributes to worsening of psoriasis. So if you're heavyweight, if you're obese, you're more likely to have worse disease than compared to if you're skinny. But it also shows how important fasting is for those that have psoriasis um, because of this, you know, few studies that have shown that through, um, that have come through Middle East. Other than that, I think uh, it's more and more difficult because of globalization. I don't, I think it's become quite difficult you know of course I can't remember I was too young when I lived in Algeria and that was a a very um, it didn't have any western influence apart from French Um, but certainly when by the time I was a teenager and went to live with my grandparents in Yemen uh, you know there was McDonald's there was Pizza Hut there was there was no difference basically in the access to cheese and dairy and so forth but certain communities obviously don't like to consume as much cheese or but yeah I think I think that distinctions become difficult now just because of the effects of McDonald's and and cheese and Pizza Hut and things like that everywhere. So what do you see as some of the key components in diet these days that do contribute to acne? So is it to do with increased dairy and red meat intake is it glycemic index is it the process so it's all actually all of those so you know interestingly um a paper came out in the jad which is a journal american association dermatology um article and said oh no you know dairy doesn't contribute to acne but only skim milk may um and so but actually when you delve a bit deeper into the the research you find that actually Dairy impacts this mTOR pathway. It's a pathway that leads to increase in gland production and increase in the um, not in the gland size, but also in the production of the sebum within the gland, which is the oily substance that comes out from those big pimples. So um, 
so and then there's um so definitely and why weight uh skim milk has more of an acnogenic effect is because what they do is they remove the fat but then it's no longer creamy so they put whey back into the skim milk to increase the whey content and that gives you the creaminess to the milk but it actually impacts the insulin growth hormone factor one it impacts also the release of androgens from your kidney your adrenal glands and so impacts your acne formation even more greatly uh, than otherwise. And it's really interesting because a lot of patients of mine, young patients, you know, usually males, will come in and they have this like severe acne that comes on so quickly. And I'll say and the first question when I look at, and it's often on their torso, and the first question I'll often say to them is, when did you start your whey protein supplements? Yep. <laughs> you know, I don't even go, when are you taking it? I'm like, when did you actually start? And, and the great thing is like studies have shown that if you stop whey protein shakes, within two weeks, you see a start to see a reduction in your acne. So that's fat profound. When it comes to red meat, it's a leucine in, your, in the red meat. Leucine is a compound that again activates this mTOR pathway. It's also found, on, uh, unfortunately, some amounts in, in eggs as well, um, poultry as well. Um, and they found you can find leucine in plants, but they found no evidence or no link between the leucine found in plants and acne that it doesn't cause acne. So we don't, maybe there's a component that we haven't really found out. Maybe there's a subgroup of leucine that we're probably not aware of. Um, so yeah, definitely that, um, um, people that eat a very bad, poor diet. So high in sugars glycemic index, high in fat, um, are definitely more prone to acne. And I think part of that is it also impacts, these sort of foods also impact our hormones. Um, so females, we, when, I, uh, when you look at those suffering from polycystic ovaries, they tend to have more acne and they tend to have this sort of central obesity as well uh, in most patients. So that tells me that, you know, um, the impact of diet also has an impact on hormones. Um, and we've certainly seen that in, you know, different um, case studies and uh, reports by, you know, someone like, um, uh, they were in uh, Bajikal, um, Nina Bajikal, I think she's a gynecologist from the UK. So she talks about that in her book called Living Free from PCOS. Um, so uh, those are the components that I greatly talk about when I talk about acne, but people get very overwhelmed with so much information. So I often give them my smoothie recipe and then all the information about where dairy is hidden. Because having suffered acne myself, you know, I thought it was just in dairy. So it was just in milk and cheese and it was in yogurt. Um, but when I went completely plant-based, I remember looking at every ingredient that I was eating and I was like, Oh, these cashews have milk in it, milk solids, yeah. or, or you know, they'll they'll sneak in the word casein in in some bars, or they'll sneak in whey protein, and you're like, hang on a minute, I am eating so much more dairy than I thought I was. It's and a so, filler. It's a filler in processed yeah, foods, right? Exactly, makes the yeah. product heavier without affecting the taste um, of the product. So yeah, you put it in because you want people to go, oh, which ones? more value for money and it's got more protein because we're so obsessed with protein yes. as well so <laughs> yeah. it's got 30 grams of protein oh in this God. in this chocolate bar so it's better for you <laughs> yeah. yeah you know yeah. what i want to see words like there's more fiber in this pro yes. this chocolate bar you yeah. know <laughs> yeah if i could yeah. drop this mic hanging on this uh boom arm i'd drop it <laughs> <Here we go. laughs> yeah like you know it's very very interesting that uh mm. this protein comes up a lot in my conversations and often i say to patients you know that protein is in every single it's a it's a nutrient that's found in every product you know if you're talking about watermelon you're talking about oranges you're talking about potatoes it has fat protein and carbohydrates that's how you make a food um, but what we're talking about when you don't eat fruits and vegetables, things that are grown out of mother nature is the fiber. Like people actually do not get fiber. And it's like very interesting. I did this experiment where in the States, when I was doing my fellowship, I'd have a chat to a patient's mom, cause I did pediatrics. So, and I'd say, oh, you know, like, 
how often do you go to the bathroom? You know, and they'll say, what's, and they'll probably look confused because they think how relevant is this to dermatology? But, um, and they'll say, oh, no, I go every five days, every six days. And I think, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, you know, you're meant to go at least a few times a day um, rather than, you know, this stigma of, oh, you can't, I, I just, I don't know, this information out there isn't yeah. there where you're meant to, you know, open your bowels often. Um, rather than not often that's that's the incorrect one so where how are you going to do that you're going to get it through fiber and not through protein so anyway this is definitely all of our pet peeve i know <laughs> um but yeah when it comes to skin and, and acne it's it's very relevant in terms of explaining that if something says protein on it it's most likely coming from whey and you should avoid that product because that definitely has an impact on your skin Look, not everything is related to these products. You know, there are hormonal problems. Sometimes, um, especially vegans, will do too much B12 and that can also cause acne. Um, sometimes we're low in zinc. Um, if our thyroid is off, that can trigger acne. So there's a lot of things that can trigger acne. But often what I say and explain to patients is that when if I turned on a tap in my clinic and left it on the whole night, and if you as a patient came to my clinic and I handed you a mop and I said, go ahead, clean it, would you say that's the best op option? And most people would say, no, actually, can you, you must want to turn the tap off first and then mop, you know, do both things at once because that's the most effective. So I say, well, actually, the mop is the medication I'm giving you, but the, um, the tap is the actual, um, you know, the lifestyle. lifestyle changes. Yeah. And then they go, oh, okay, yeah, that's true. And they'll say, how much do I have to do it? And I'm like, the more you do it, the better. Because um, we, at the end of the day, um, if you do it 100%, of course, you're going to get fantastic results. If you do it half-heartedly and it's not, you know, you maybe you eat one less piece of cheese or in a day, then it's not really going to be that impactful on your skin. And I also say that it takes time to make these changes. If you expect things to improve within a week, I, I think that's incorrect. I think you should, you need your, the gut microbiomes to process and change. And that change can be for some people months, some people sooner than that. So um, don't expect big changes initially. But, you know, I put it back into the monetary part of it too. I say, look, if you make these changes, you're not going to come and see me for a long period of time and you're going to save yourself a lot of money and you won't have to invest in all these over-the-counter skincare products again you'll save thousands of dollars so by making a small change you save yourself a lot of money but that's up to you you're more than welcome to keep coming back and seeing me or buying those products or you make your change so i leave it always you know to the patient to make that judgment call what about rosacea? Because that can affect a pretty decent chunk of the population. I think it's about 15%. So any diet yeah. or lifestyle triggers to be aware of there. You read on the internet and, you know, you can't have spices or alcohol or hot beverages or there's long, 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 long list. You've got most so. of them actually. But you know what's interesting with rosacea is I found two things. So one is I'll always ask a female, did it start when you were pregnant? And often they'll say, yes, it did second or first pregnancy doesn't matter and we know that there's some impact with the hormones on the on the microbiome too but this is again an emerging sort of area um, and the second I think I asked them was have you ever had a life in, an impact in your life that affected you significantly for example was it a did you have an accident or were you in the hospital for a prolonged period of time you know, all of a sudden you had, an, say, burst appendicitis and you needed to be in the hospital or um, so any kind of trauma physically, mentally um, that you've experienced in the past because often you'll find that they'll say yes to any of those questions. Um, and, um, for example, I've got a patient with terrible rosacea and um, it started when he was in an earthquake in Indonesia. He remembers that exact, like he had an, he was in the earthquake, impacted him so much. And then now his skin has been, ever since then, has, you know, been a constant problem for him. And so, so this stress that people experience can often then have a huge impact on the gut. 
we see that with, you know, prolonged hospital stay um, and so forth. And so gut microbiome and rosacea are very strongly linked. So for example, if you have celiac disease, you're very likely to get rosacea very young age. So in your twenties rather than your forties. Um, and there's this whole um, starting to be linked between you know, inflammatory bowel disease, but also um, a condition called SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This is not a mainstream medical diagnosis, um, but it's certainly starting to be recognised by certain gastroenterologists uh, within Australia and overseas, more so overseas, of course. Um, and by treating that, you can, by first diagnosing that, which is through a simple breath test um, and treating that, almost some, most of those people get a good resolution of their rosacea symptoms. So that definitely shows you that link between the gut and, and rosacea. And then of course, rosacea comes in different kind of um, entities. So it comes as the pimply type, the acne type. So treating it like what you do with acne. But if you're getting flushing and redness, then the things that you talked about Emma, are quite relevant because Rosacea is a link between, on a superficial skin level, between a nerve release being triggered and releasing neuropeptides that then cause the blood vessel on the surface of the skin to dilate. So there's a, uh, receptors on the nerves so that can be triggered by things like cinnamon, mustard oil, capsaicin, which is on chili foods or chilies, and that abnormally tells the nerve to release all these chemical peptides, which then causes this dilation in the blood vessel. So you get this flushing and redness on this. Um, so often um, I say to people, avoid anything to do with cinnamon, whether it's cinnamon flavoring or um, cinnamon itself. <laughs> ben, can't put it on your oats. <laughs> <laughs> and often people put it on their oats. So no, and then it does, it just triggers this flushing. Um, other things people don't know about tomatoes, so this is really shameful, but tomatoes have been, if you cut out tomatoes, it can help your rosacea. Not everyone, but th those that are quite severe, they'll try that. Um, alcohol, yes, red wine especially because it has a lot of preservatives. You can try organic red wine that has less preservatives, but often I say go for like your clear spirits. Um, but the biggest thing that we need to do is increase resistant starches in your diet. So. I don't know if anyone, you guys know, but I don't know if your audience knows about resistant starches. Um, so a great short video on YouTube is by CSIRO and it's called The Hungry Microbiome. I think it's a great animation, animated video for four minutes. If you haven't seen it to all the um, listeners, definitely watch it because it really makes you really understand what gut microbiome is all about. Um, and so resistant starches are things that are starchy vegetables that you often will cook, cool them down and reheat them. And that reheating process increases the amount of starches and they're very hard to break down in the small intestine, but they tend to be broken down by these, um, by your gut microbiome in the large intestine. And they eventually cause a chemical called butyrate to be released, which is like the energy source for all the cells that are lining the large intestine. So often it makes, basically that energy source makes your gut healthier. Um, so rather than um, things passing through your colon, these are actually actively being chomped away by the gut, good bacteria in your gut. Um, so that's really important. You have to add that to your diet when it comes to rosacea. Um, and then, yeah, I think then there's other lifestyle changes like what you do on the surface of the skin, that you, you treat your skin, you know, like you would treat a baby's skin. You wouldn't put actives on your skin. You wouldn't rub your face. You wouldn't get facials done. You would always wear sunscreen and you wouldn't, you gently cleanse your face. You wouldn't use anything too harsh and just an oil-free moisturizer. So, um, yeah, I think, that, but this is a really interesting space. This is definitely my inter area of interest um, where I think we're, we're just finding more and more information every day about the link between the gut and the skin when it comes to rosacea. So I think it'll open up the kind of the world in dermatology once we get a more substantial link, but definitely you can start to see all these conditions that are you know, that patients have from a gut perspective will end up having rosacea at some stage. So, yeah, 
hopefully I've answered some of your questions. Sorry, I've digressed a bit. No, it's good. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you just mentioned how you treat your skin. Now I'm coming in hot here, but is the beauty industry a sham? Because there's exfoliants, <laughs> there's, um, you know, growing up as a kid and watching my grandma, mum, oil of belay is what keeps your skin looking young. And uh, is that all a sham then? I mean, co putting coatings of all these things that promise you a younger skin and a youthful skin and reversing aging or keeping you look young for <laughs> ages. And, um, you know, you've got exfoliate, you've got to do these skin peels, which I've always thought is just, that just does not make sense. It's quite the opposite. Just leave your skin alone, right? I mean, is that really more the... It's interesting, isn't it? Like women do so much to their skin and men do absolutely nothing most of the time that you'd be hard to get a man to put a sunscreen on. And yet we both live till, you know, to a ripe old age. So um, to be honest, like I think that there are some products out there that do work. Um, and there's products out there that make us feel better. And I think there's some evidence that that's good to use as well, because if it's making you feel better mentally or you're, you're more elevated so why not but then there are products that are absolutely not required um and uh, for so for me i think the biggest thing is wear a sunscreen i don't care what else you do as long as you wear a sunscreen if you want to wash your face wash it with a cleanser you can use your body cleanser you can use a facial cleanser it doesn't really matter except if you've got rosacea then you have to use very gentle cleanser for your face um, and then when it comes to moisturizer, if you've got acne or acne prone skin, use something oil free. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what you use as long as it hydrates the skin. So price point actually has been shown to have no impact on the quality of the product. Um, so often people say if you buy something more expensive, it'll definitely be working a lot better. Now, there are products in the market that none of us have access to, you know, what the celebrities have access to. and. Um, so forth. So I can't comment on those because um, it's very hard to get your hands on those products, which can be quite expensive. But if you're looking at products, you know, say, for example, there's a vitamin B3, which I absolutely love, niacinamide. I think it has a place in rosacea. Um, it has a place in our healthcare workers where we wear masks all the time. We, I tend, it's like an antioxidant, but tries to prevent acne. Um, you can get something for $10 or you can get something for $90. We can get something for $145. Now, maybe the $145 one has a bit more, um, it's micro emulse, so it's a little bit better on bioavailability on your skin. But does it really make a big difference? Probably not. Might as well get for something cheaper. Try that out and see if it works for you. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things out there. There's a lot of things like now chemical peels can work if they use at the right profession. So, you can get chemical peels that are at beauticians, which is usually to be used as a temporary fix. It's not a long lasting effect. If you, if you go to a dermatologist, you're gonna have worse outcome for a short period of time with these chemical peels, but they're gonna be a lot deeper and you'll have a better effect. But we are finding that actually lasers are replacing most of the time these chemical peels. So, or we use lasers with chemical peels as an adjunct to help improve the surface of the skin. But if, if someone does all these things and still goes and sits out in the sun without sunscreen, then it's made no difference to your skin. Eventually you're gonna still end up having um, all the pigmentary and aging issues related to the sun. Mm. So the first thing I say to you is like, if don't invest too much money, always seek shade, wear sunscreen, always wear a hat, trying to really um, uh, be mindful about your sun exposure, especially in the winter, because often that's the most time people get burnt because they don't realize the UV rays can be just as high. And if you're in New Zealand, the air is much cleaner, it's slightly on a higher altitude, there's more UV exposure than we have in Australia, slightly more. So uh, that's why America, you, uh, New Zealand has the highest rate of melanoma rates in the world because of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think <laughs> it's a difficult question because there's so many, th mm. like millions of products out there. But how do you know? I mean, it's, it is complex, right? I mean, let's yeah. touch on See something a else. Dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, I'm also, I mean, Emma, just before the show reminded me, I need to go get my skin checked because being in New Zealand and I've just yes. run a race at, at altitude uh, 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 two days ago. But as someone, I do spend a lot of hours in the sun. I'm, mm. I run ultramarathons. So I train for a whole day. I'm in the sun all day. 
Yes. Sunscreen is such a, every year in New Zealand, and I think Australia does the same, they do a survey of all the brands and two thirds of them fail. Yeah. What, how do you choose a sunscreen that works? And what, define what works? What, you know, is it down to the factor? Is it down to, to the, the chemicals in there are mineral based just as effective. I mean, I'm throwing a whole lot, a barrage really, of no, questions. No, no. I love you, sunscreens. I love sunscreens. Um, and also so, how you should store yeah. them. Like don't keep them in the hot car yes. in Australia. <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly, it denatures the, the sunscreen if you do leave it in your car. So first and foremost, in Australia and New Zealand, I think the maximum you can, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but in Australia you can get up to 50 plus. But if you look go on, on Amazon and look at the you American get 75. website. You can, you can get 110, yeah. but in Australia, we can't go beyond 50 plus. So 50 plus actually means they could be beyond that, but that's the maximum they can report. Yeah. The difference between like 30 plus and 50 plus is about 3% better in terms of stopping you from getting burned. So it's not a huge difference. So from 95% to 98%. And what sunscreen does is it reduces the time, it lengthens the time it takes you to get a sunburn. So it's not a it's not a barrier cream that's going to stop you from getting sunburned. It's just that say you were meant to get burnt in in thirty minutes if you sat in the full sun. Putting on sunscreen might might make it forty five minutes, so give you that extra fifteen minutes to stop you from burning. So you've got more changes to be done. And that's um, individual too, right? So it could be thirty minutes for too. you. It could be forty minutes for me. Yes. It could be five minutes for Emma. Like it's it's still individual based. Still that's individual based, right? Exactly. Yeah. But every sunscreen, firstly, we never put it on correctly because we often will miss places. Um, so often, I um, it's good to get something that um, and take your time in putting it on areas that you know are getting chronically sun exposed. So definitely your face, neck and backs of the hands where you ears. see aging a lot. Ears for men, yes, and lip balm with the SPF on it because those areas are constantly getting sun exposure. Uh, you know, when you're running, you're probably, I'm hoping you're running with a shirt on and, and, and oh, yeah, as yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want so to scare these all the spectators away. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, most of us are now better at wearing rashies at, to, in the in the yeah. beach, and we're yeah. better at doing the clothing part. But the sunscreens are one where we miss, and we often get misled by the information on the packaging. It says, you know, if it's water resistant, you can take four hours to reapply. No, if you are sweating, you have to reapply every two hours. It doesn't matter if it's water resistant or not. <laughs> So, you know, any activity, if you're not doing any activity that makes you sweat, like you're just wearing it to work and back, then you can reapply at lunchtime and you'll be fine. But don't expect that sunscreen to work at, in the evening when you're coming back home from work. If you've got, you know, the daylight savings are quite long. Um, so, yeah, really important, 50 plus. And then in terms of chemical or mineral, I think it, it um, so... There are people that are worried about nanoparticles that come from chemical sunscreens. Now, TGA, we are the most regulated body for sunscreen. So in Australia, you cannot get a sunscreen brand here unless TGA approves it. And that goes through a series of regulatory um, bodies. And one of the things if you go on TGA website, they'll say is that they've done extensive research and these nanoparticles are getting nowhere near your bloodstream. So don't worry. And in fact, you know, people say, well, sunscreen causes cancer, and that is completely untrue because the rates of skin cancer have actually dropped in the, um, not in the 70s and above or 60s and above, but definitely patients that are in their 40s and under, you can see a downward trend in the melanoma rates, for example. So it has been hugely impactful on reduction of skin cancer rates. Um, but when it, so, so then mineral is really good if you're a child. So infants, I usually recommend, um, a mineral, like a zinc based one, because there's no chemicals. So the baby's not going to react to any of the chemicals, but you know, I've got skin of color. If I put a zinc based on, I'm going to look really strange. You know, it's like, I'm, I've got white makeup on. Yeah. Um, so I need chemical based because often that's mixed in with some kind of pigment and I can use it on without getting that mm. sheen and that white color. Um, there are tinted zinc based sunscreen, uh, but again, they're very thick, um, but certainly an option if you don't like the chemical based option. Um, and so we're really lucky. There are so many sunscreens in the market, but 
you have to see how sensitive your skin is, um, what your personal preference is, what your skin color is, um, and then what your budget is. Um, because, uh, you know, if you're cancer council, you know, sunscreens in Australia are really good, but they're very oily and thick. And so you wouldn't use that if you've got acne or acne rosacea. Um, so then you want to use something that's oil-free on your face as a result. Um, so there's no single great answer I can say to you that mm. product is really good. And in fact, um, we're not allowed to recommend a particular brand or product anymore. So um, even social media influencers are no longer in Australia allowed to, um, you know, use. A, but can you and, recommend against brands? Um, and and, I, yeah, and I, I mean this a little bit tongue in cheek because there are brands here, and I think New Zealand is. Oh no, they are not. They they have different testing. Um, yeah, sort of they have different tests. Um, yeah. But there are certain brands that regularly fail the tests yeah. in terms of what they purport to the protection they the meant to provide, and they fail. Yeah. And some of those yeah. are brands that are well established, so people still buy them. You know, pharmacies yeah. and so on still stock them. Um, but also the other thing is the preference of, of moving to mineral bases also because I know Hawaii is 100% across this. And I, I thought Queensland was or maybe is meant to move, but the whole chemicals because of the damage it does to reefs. So moving yeah. away from certain chemicals, which... So yeah. not all chemical sunscreens have um, chemicals that bleach the, uh, the reef. So like Hawaii, for example, introduced reef-free sunscreen, a reef um, protective sunscreen, like I'm talking 2017, I think was when mm. they introduced yeah. it. So a long time yeah. ago, we still, I don't think Queensland's done it yet. Um, um, and uh, the, there's, I think, oxybenzone and one more that is a chemical that bleaches. There are other yeah. chemicals that don't. So you can still have chemical-based sunscreen that says reef, um, um, reef bleach-free, yeah. yeah, reef-safe sunscreen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's plenty of options, I think. But you're right. Like, I think we need to be really mindful. And I often will look at also are they tested on animals because um, that's one of my interests that when I did testing of animal um, at Johns Hopkins as a, as a, a subject, it's really interesting that none of it really works. So, you know, they'll use rabbit's eyes and, you know, introduce, put products in their eyes. And yet the ocular pressure of the eye and the, and the way it diffuses is so different to a human that it doesn't really matter if you test on a rabbit or not. It makes no difference to, um, they'll say it's safe, you know, it didn't affect the rabbit, so it shouldn't affect the human, but it has no relevance actually mm. there are mathematical models that are much better at understanding whether something's going to react with a human or not and in fact i'll leave you with this um, thing that if aspirin was tested on rats which is what they used to do we wouldn't have access to aspirin today mm. because aspirin kills rats very quickly and uh, back in the day prior to animal testing uh aspirin was already introduced to us as humans and you know we use it on such a regular base for um, so many ailments um, so yeah there's no real great evidence that testing on animals has an impact on mm. on us as humans in a positive way mm. conscious we need to wrap up because uh, we know you need to be elsewhere uh, but very <laughs> quickly the nutrition healthcare conference what can or why should someone who has not yet bought a ticket buy a ticket to come hear you what can they expect from you so i think the first thing is that i'm fine approachable speaker and you can ask me any questions you like within either at the conference or after the conference um which is great you'll get free advice and so why not come to the conference you'll get some interesting highlights from some great speakers um, there's some amazing um, overseas speakers coming, which I'm really excited about. There shows eyes, um, and also a personal friend of mine um, who's a vegan oncologist, Dr. Despina, will be talking about oncology, which I think hasn't really been talked about a lot in that plant-based sort of um, conference in the past. Um, so I'm really excited. And the best thing about the conference usually is the food so you've really got to come <laughs> come you know it's the only time only conference that i go to where i actually lose weight because despite <laughs> eating so much <laughs> yeah the burn right. effect 
that's the it. bird that's effect exactly 17th to the 19th of feb in melbourne for anyone that's interested come meet all of us because you know this is your chance <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Niati Sharma, thank you so much. I know it's been a few months in the making, but I think this is very timely. It's the, I mean, I'm looking outside, stunning blue, blue skies, but it's hot. The UV, especially in New Zealand, is not good. So some really important lifestyle tips, but as well as put on the sunscreen. So thank you put so much for sunscreen. your time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'll leave one note for your uh, viewers. Don't drink alcohol and sit out in the sun because you're more likely to burn faster. So avoid alcohol when you're out in the barbecue or on the beach. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.